We do serve a magnificent God, do we not? Praise God for that. Well, we're going to go to the Lord together now in prayer. Uh, Just a couple of updates to share with you. One, as many of you know, John Fletcher had surgery Friday morning, a quadruple bypass surgery that he found out earlier this week that he was going to need. We're thankful that the doctors discovered one of the blockages was 99%, another was 90%, and a couple around 80 and so thankful for God's protection of him. Uh, saw him this weekend. His grip is just as strong as ever, but you can tell he's hurting pretty good right now. So uh, be in prayer for, for John and for Pat. Also, just would encourage uh, the church, for us as a church family, to be praying as praying over our deacon nominations this week. You know, the first time the, the church set apart deacons for ministry was in Acts chapter 6, and they said, look for those who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so let's pray that God would guide us to those people and call people from among us to serve the church in this way. And also, they may have been here, I may have missed them a Sunday or two, and I apologize for that, but I'm really excited to see uh, Richard McNamee and Ron Shear here this morning. So I just wanted to say a welcome to both of those men. I'm thankful that you both can be here and that God has uh, brought you back to us. Let's go to God together now in prayer. God, we thank you that you are an amazing God, one who created the world and yet bore the sin of the world on his shoulders. God, we know that your word tells us that you are light and in you is no darkness at all. So if we say that we fellowship with you while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, your son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we come to you this morning through the blood of Jesus. God, we do not say we have no sin, but we do say with Jesus our sin is forgiven. And we ask that you would hear us this morning, particularly as we bring before you uh, those in our church family who are carrying uh, particular burdens. We think of John Fletcher this morning as he's uh, downtown at River Hospital, unable to be here. God, I pray that you would heal him and give him strength and healing. And I pray for Pat, God. I pray that you will help us know how to help them. And God, as he recuperates and rehabs over the coming months, God, please uh, work in his body. We think as well as uh, we look for men and women to serve this congregation as deacons. God, that you will raise up and equip people for this ministry among our congregation. Thank you for uh, bringing Ron and Richard, God, back among us. God, what an encouragement it is to see them here. We thank you that as we preach the gospel here in our community, we are not the only church doing this. God, we thank you for Citadel Square Baptist Church. And I pray for them as they strive to reach all people, and particularly through their college ministry there, God, that you would make that fruitful, that their life-on-life discipleship would truly change people's lives. And I pray for Pastor Steve and the other leaders there, that you will uh, protect them from temptation. God, make them a people that love your word and love you. We think of Senator Mitch McConnell this morning, our majority leader in the U.S. Senate. And God, I pray that his leadership would enable us to lead a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified in every way. We think of those serving in the country of Bhutan. God, it's, it's a, a place that's closed to the gospel. The authorities there are vehemently opposed to your word and to Christ. And I pray for the church there that they will see people come to know you and that churches will multiply churches. Thank you for the Arringtons, for Dick and Susie. God, I thank you for making them a part of Ashley River. I pray that you will encourage them in their walk with Christ. I ask for their marriage, God, that you would make it strong, that they would reflect increasingly Christ's and his love for the church and their relationship with each other. 
God, that you'll give them in, in their uh, wisdom, in their work life, in their, in their family life. And for us as a congregation, God, work among us that will be the kind of people that walk with one, one another in humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, as we come to your word, I ask that you would break up the hard ground in our hearts. Make our hearts soft toward your, toward your word, that we would turn from sin. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would open eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ and teach us what it means that you are our Father and that we are your children adopted through our brother Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be considering the ministry of John the Baptist this morning, as well as the baptism of Jesus. You know, there's some sections that you, of Scripture that you come to uh, that are easier than others. This is one that's a, it's a little bit bigger bite to chew in that it's, it's kind of a, it's an in-your-face message. John the Baptist is, is that kind of a person, as you'll see. He calls uh, the, some of the people that show up uh, a den of vipers, a brood of vipers. And so uh, it's, God's Word does not mess around, and this is one of those passages. And so uh, as we work through this, I'll pray that God will, uh, will help us in it. But there's also encouragement for us at the end. But what we're going to see as we work through Matthew chapter 3 is that true repentance is a radical change of heart that results in a radical change of life. True repentance is a radical change of heart that results in a radical change of life. And I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, if you walk into churches across America today or even across our city, you'll find preachers dressed in different ways. Uh, Some might be wearing clerical robes, vestments of some sort. Others are dressed in lines, maybe with 
cufflinks, a, a handkerchief, and a, a pretty splashing tie. Uh, maybe others are dressed kind of like the coolest hipster in the downtown coffee shop, tight jeans and a tight shirt. So people are dressed different ways in various places, but I doubt you'll find anyone dressed quite like John the Baptist. He had a unique presentation. In fact, as we see in the text here, he's wearing a garment of camel hair. He has a leather belt tied around his middle. And so the first person that we see here this morning is this messenger, John the Baptist. He's not an ordinary messenger. He's here with a message from God. He's here with a particular message, and he's bringing it from a particular person. Now, the reason John's clothing stands out is not just to kind of catch your eye, but it tells us a couple of things about John. One, it tells us that he's poor. These are the clothes of a poor person. So he doesn't have a lot. He lives in the wilderness. He's not some sort of prosperity gospel preacher getting rich off of his message. In fact, if he were trying that, he should probably preach a different message than the one he chose. But he's here, he's poor, he's in the wilderness. But it also tells us something else about him. You see, if you were to uh, read the Old Testament, you come to the books of history there. In 2 Kings chapter 1, we read there about a prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah, like John, is prophesying outside the city. And, and some men come to the king and they say, hey, there's this preacher outside of town and he's preaching a message of judgment. This king's name, by this time Ahab is dead, this king's name is Ahaziah. Uh, Ahab is gone, but Ahaziah, like Ahab, is not a good king. And so Elijah is preaching and he's basically saying, Ahaziah, judgment is coming, God's going to kill you. Well, this is not a popular message either. Well, these men show up and they share this with them. They say, what's the prophet's name? Well, they don't know the prophet's name, but they tell him he's wearing clothing of animals here and wearing a leather belt. He said, oh, well, that's Elijah. Elijah was known for wearing this. So when John the Baptist shows up in the New Testament, he's dressed just like Elijah. People say, this is Elijah reincarnate. Now, it's not, but he's known as the second Elijah because of the way he dressed. Well, also because he's poor, John lives off the land, and so he eats locusts, kind of large grasshoppers, and wild honey. Now, I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning, but I'll venture to say it was a step ahead of grasshoppers. So I appreciate that. So John is living in the wilderness, eating locusts, wild honey, nothing to show for his ministry. So this particular wilderness that he lives in is the wilderness of Judea. So you see here a map of Israel or Palestine in the far north, you see Galilee. That's important because that's where Jesus will come from when he shows up later. Now, most of the people here are southerners. Jesus is a Yankee. He comes from the far north down to the south. Not really, that's not how it worked in Israel, but he comes from the north down to the south, and it's actually a lot smaller than our, than our nation anyway. But so if you look here, you see at the top of this map is the Sea of Galilee. That kind of marks the top of Israel. At the bottom is the Dead Sea. And then the line flowing in between there is the Jordan River. You see an arrow pointing to the Jordan River. And then right there at the bottom, just to the west of the Jordan River, right at the north side of the Dead Sea, is the wilderness of Judea. This is probably the area in which John the Baptist is preaching. Well, the way that Matthew describes this is that one day John just kind of appears in the wilderness preaching. No one knew who he was, and then suddenly he springs out of nowhere, and he becomes kind of a celebrity. People are flocking from all around, from Jerusalem, from Judea, this area, and then he says from all the region around the Jordan. There are tons, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people going there to hear John the Baptist preach. Well, when they show up, his fame grows in part because he looks like Elijah. All these people are there, and so we move now from the messenger to his message. What is the prophet's message? We often think of a prophet as someone who predicts the future, someone who can kind of foretell what's going to happen in the future. 
But biblically speaking, a prophet's job is actually much more basic than that. It might include telling the future, but it actually is a much broader job description. His job is actually just to speak the words of the Lord. So in other words, he wasn't there to speak any message or just kind of create his own message or just predict the future. His primary role was to say, thus saith the Lord, as a good old King James would say it, or your modern Bibles might say, God says this, the Lord says this, this says the Lord. His job was not to speak his words, but God's words. And really, that's the same job that pastors, preachers today in our churches have. It's not my job to be the wisest or the smartest person here. And thank God for that, because I am not. But my job is to accurately try to understand and then teach, preach God's words to God's people. So as we meet after, week after week, I hope we're the kind of congregation where it's customary for us to know our Bibles, to open our Bibles, to look at our Bibles as we walk through them, so that we can see these aren't our ideas. These aren't something that we came up with. These are God's ideas. I mean, God doesn't typically speak audibly to us now like he did with John the Baptist or Elijah, but he does say in 2 Timothy 4, 2, that the pastor's job is to preach the word, the word of God. Well, what is John's message? Well, the core of his message is in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Mark's gospel also tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist, and it doesn't quote John's words in the same way, but it describes John's ministry as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So there's this connection between John's John's message, repentance, and forgiveness of sins. There's this connection there. So if repentance is the heart of John's message, what in the world is repentance? Well, to help us understand this today, I'm going to take a a step a few decades back in time. So as many of you know, I grew up in Taylors, South Carolina, right outside. I was born in Greenville, but grew up in Taylors in the country right outside of Greenville. Family had a little kind of a mini farm there, six acres, and we were surrounded by kind of similar properties. Well, growing up, we had a latitude, an area where we were essentially allowed to roam, and that was our street. Country road, not a lot of people there. If we got off our road, there were state highways where there's a little bit faster traffic, but we essentially, our road was about one mile long, almost exactly. We could go from one end of it to the other. Well, we went up this way. We couldn't go that far, but if we could go to the other end, we could ride our bikes, you know, three quarters of a mile. Just two doors down from our house, this is probably a quarter mile because the places were a little bit far apart, there was a house, and in my seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old mind, this was an infamous house because of a dog that lived at this house. Now, I looked on the internet this week for a picture of this dog. It was a chow. Now, what you see here before you is nothing like the dog that lived at this house. Now, this is what they want you to believe a chow looks like, but I promise you, this dog looked more like this. As an eight-year-old boy riding my bike down the street, if I saw the chow, I knew I was not riding past our neighbor's house, and that day it was going to be a short ride. I would ride down the street, see it, and boom, I would turn and run back home because I knew it was not safe to ride by this dog's house. He would come after me like this ravenous wolf. Now, I mean, I was eight. Give me a break. I know he didn't look like this, but it felt like that at the time. Well, what happened in that moment as I'm riding my bike, I see the danger that lies ahead, and I turn, and I head the opposite direction. That's just repentance. Repentance means to turn around. It's, it's a 180. It's seeing the direction you're going and turning and running the opposite way because repenting people know that judgment is real. Repenting people know that judgment is real. You see, repentance is a radical transformation of our entire person. It's grieving over sin. 
It's turning from sin, agreeing with God about sin in a way that shows that God, not sin, is our master. Well, if you know your Bible or if you grew up in a family or church that prayed together the Lord's Prayer, you know it goes something like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what's the next line? Thy kingdom come. It's a prayer for God's kingdom to come. Well, Jesus tells God's people to pray this because there's a great blessing when the kingdom comes. But John also tells us that the kingdom should be feared in one sense. There's a warning that comes with God's kingdom. It's a warning to sinners. Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then verse 7 says that wrath is coming. And verse 10 and verse 12 tell us that this judgment that comes is a judgment of fire. Well, John uses two illustrations to help us understand this. One in verse 10 and then one in verse 12. The illustration in verse 10 is essentially that of a burn pile. Well, sometimes we were, uh, when we were working in woods around our house, we would try to make areas of it usable for pasture land that we hadn't used before. As we cleared that out, there was some wood there that was useful for other tasks, but a lot of it honestly was just weeds, brambles, briars, small trees that we'd have to get rid of. We would throw those on a pile to be burned later. Well, that's the picture that John uses here. In fact, he's very emphatic in the way he says it. The axe is already at the root of the tree. In other words, you don't have to look around wondering when judgment will come. The judgment is coming. The kingdom of God is here. It's very near. So when Jesus comes, he's preaching a gospel of good news, but he also, on the other hand, brings with him a message of judgment. And the picture here is that that the people who don't come to faith in Christ are those who are essentially, they're, they're the outcast branches that are thrown on the pile and burned. Well, verse 12, he gives us another picture, kind of a, a different picture, again, that people there would understand that maybe is a little bit more removed from us. So then uh, they didn't have combines that would kind of do the harvesting for them. They could drive this giant machine through a field and it would kind of harvest the grain for them. They would have to harvest it by hand. So the first they'd go through and they'd cut the grain down with a scythe and they'd gather it and they'd bring it to the threshing floor. And on the threshing floor, they'd pile all the grain, and then they would beat the grain. And after they beat the grain, what would happen is the, the heavier, the kernel of grain would fall, and then it would separate the husks, or what, 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 what we see here is called the chaff from the grain. Then they would kind of beat it, toss it in the air, and the chaff would blow to the side, and the grain would just qual- fall quickly to the ground. They could sweep it, gather it, and, and take it into the barn. Well, what would they do with all of the leftover no-good husks? They'd burn those. And so what John does is he takes these very clear images, clearing land, getting rid of brambles, briars, trees that you don't need, or clearing out parts of grain that you don't need and disposing of it. And he says that this fire is a picture of what will happen to those who do not repent, to those who do not turn to faith in Christ. It's a painful picture. Judgment is real. Well, repenting people also agree with God about their sin. If you look back at verse 6, you see that the people who come to John come confessing their sins. Now, this isn't a picture of some sort of first century wilderness confessional where John sits in a booth and there's someone that sits on the other side. To confess simply means that you agree. It literally means to say the same words. In other words, you use the same words to describe your sin that God uses to describe your sin. Repenting people are not the kind of people who excuse or kind of use other words to describe their sins. So we like to say this, well, like, I just have strong opinions. When God says you're proud and angry. Or you might say, oh, I'm just, I'm just stubborn, you know, that's, that's, how, that's how we pegrims are. And God says, no, you're selfish, you love your own way. 
Or you might say, well, I'm just the kind of person who speaks my mind. And God says, no, you're the kind of person whose words do not minister grace to those who hear. And so the point that John is saying is that we use the same words to describe our sin that God uses to describe our sin. We don't try to find ways to explain it away or kind of euphemisms for sin. We don't come up with other ways to describe it. We agree with what God says. And this is because repenting people are humble before God. Humble before God. There are people flocking out to John the Baptist to hear his message. And as these people come, as we see, many of them are being baptized, which means that many of them are turning from their sin, receiving his message, and being baptized. But there is another group that shows up here in verse 7. And actually, it's two groups of people that come together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees are, are groups of people that make up a larger group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is essentially, they're the, they're the with it movers and shakers, people that rule Israel. They're the people that decide who does what and when they get to do what. And so when these people show up, they come with them and they bring with them a measure of influence. They're used to the idea that they come in and they kind of say how things are and who does what. They're not showing up genuinely listening to John's message. They're showing up sitting in judgment, essentially saying, is it okay that John has this message to preach? Now, this is going to become a big factor in the life of Christ because in Christ's ministry, they show up over and over and over again, and they're not showing up there to listen to him. They're showing up there to pronounce judgment on what he's saying. Well, when these people show up, John is not exactly noted for his tact. So it doesn't really beat around the bush here, but in verse 7, he calls them a brood of vipers, a den of snakes. He's not just calling them names. He knows this group quite well. In fact, we know that because of what he says. He essentially quotes back to them what they claim for themselves. He says, don't, don't, don't be saying to me, Abraham is our father. And so we kind of inhabit this place of privilege. I mean, if God wanted, he says, he could raise up children of Abraham from stones. God can create anything he wants. You're nothing special. The God you serve is special. And so these people, their idea was that they were special or God chose them, used them because of who they were. In fact, by this time, it had become common for Israelites to claim that God favored them because they were special. And what John is saying is, no, it's just God's mercy and grace. It's not because there's anything special in you. See, these people had forgotten. If you get to Romans chapter 1, you find this verse, the righteous will live by faith. But that's not Paul's idea. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was the first one to say the righteous live by faith. You see, it's always been that God saves people who come to him humbly and repentant. You know, there's a temptation to kind of look at Israel and leave this on the shelf of history, but I want to bring this a little bit closer to home for us this morning. I mean, I believe strongly in the importance of committed church membership. I think it's one of the ways that God works among his people today is in commitment to one another, loving, serving, covenanting together to do that. But being a member of a church cannot and will not save you. Being a member of Ashley River Baptist Church isn't what matters in terms of your standing with God or a member of any other church, whether it's Lutheran, Episcopalian, any church. Church membership cannot and will not save you. Neither can your ethnic heritage or your cultural heritage or your earthly citizenship. We certainly have blessings being members of an earthly nation. 
But at the judgment seat of Christ, he's not asking, you know, did you fully enjoy your rights of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? His question for you on that day will be, do you know my son Jesus? Have you turned to God through faith in Christ? You see, those who come to God through faith in Christ, far from claiming we're special, claim we deserve nothing. We bring nothing in our hands to the cross of Christ. We deserve judgment. We're those people who deserve to be thrown in the fire, but through Christ, we receive mercy, and God gathers us in as his children. You see, it's, it's only the people who know they're nothing special, who know they deserve nothing, that God can save. The only people that are qualified to be God's children are the people who know they're not qualified to be God's children. God makes us his children by faith. So if you are here this morning and you think that at any level that your relationship with God is dependent on your parents, on your church background, on your earthly citizenship, on your ethnic heritage, brothers and sisters, friends, let me tell you that the only thing that matters is do you have faith in Christ? And if you do not know him, would you turn, repent, turn from relying on those other things and trust Jesus to save you? Well, if repentance is real and repentance is for humble people, there's a little bit of a difficulty here because if you spent much time with me, you'd learn I ain't humble. I'm a proud person. I mean, the reason I know about, you know, using euphemisms to describe stubborn people who want their own way is because that's me. I like getting my own way. I like being right. I am right. Right? That's how that works, isn't it? Well, how is it that we know if this is taking place in our heart, if, if we are repenting people? And it's because of this fourth thing, that repenting people change their way of life. It's a change of heart that results in a change of life. It's not ultimately about a moment of contrition. Often it includes that. We know this in part because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us a story about two brothers in the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau. Not only are they brothers, they're twins, born one right after the other. Jacob's the older brother, or uh, Esau's the older brother, Jacob's uh, the younger brother. And their whole life, they're fighting, bickering. Well, Jacob is crafty. He's a little bit smarter. Esau's kind of big, powerful, kind of like your dumb ox kind of guy, but athlete, you know, hunter, whatever. So he goes out and hunts one day. He comes home and he's hungry. And have you ever had that moment where you get home and you're hangry? You know, where you haven't eaten and so you're bordering on that irritable and and he smells something cooking. And in that moment, Jacob essentially convinces his brother to trade him his birthright, the right to what he deserves as the oldest son, and give it to him for the sake of one bowl of stew. And in this moment, uh, Esau's like that guy who gets home, he's hungry, and he eats the whole bag of chips. Now, later he regrets it. He knows he shouldn't have done it, but, I mean, in the moment, it felt good, and then later he realizes this was a bad idea. And Hebrews 12 tells us that, that he regretted this. He even wept over it. But he didn't ever truly repent. It never touched his heart. It never reached down into him. And the way Hebrews describes it is there's a root of bitterness. There's a resentment. He, he saw it as Jacob's fault. He never understood truly. He never owned his sin. You see, true repentance is a radical change of heart that produces a radical change of life. It's not ultimately about making a decision in a service or a camp or any other place. Although there have been many times where God worked in my heart through services, camp, or particular ministries. But what happens is we know the evidence of that moment in the life that follows, in the fruit that grows on that tree. We see this in verse 8. He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And again in verse 10, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Ultimately, the evidence of repentance is the life we live. It's does our life show that Christ is our master? Do we live day in and day out in a way that agrees with God about our sin? Do we live in a way that shows that our heart has changed by the way that our life has changed? And God doesn't tell us that this looks so much like, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with those that do, as much as it looks like the fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, is the fruit that comes from our life, the fruit of God's Spirit. What does our fruit say about the root of our faith? What does the evidence of our lives show about the humility of our hearts? And God isn't here kind of holding up some standard of perfection and demanding that we meet it. He does, but Christ meant that for us. But what he is saying is that those who come to faith in Christ should live lives that increasingly look like Christ. So people want to know what it looks like to be a Christian. They should be able to look, or to look like Jesus. They should be able to look at Christians, little Christs, and know what that looks like. It's why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And he's saying, all the things that don't look like Christ, put those away. But follow me as I follow Christ. And the lives of Christians are those, they like to be arrows pointing to the character of Christ. And the evidence of our lives shows us this. Well, John's message is a confrontational message, as we've seen. But he also has a word of hope here for us. So John is out in the wilderness with crowds, and then Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, everyone there, they're southern Israelites. Jesus is from the north. He's the outsider, and he comes in. Now, when this happens, something remarkable happens. John immediately recognizes Jesus. Now, Perhaps this is because John has kind of supernatural insight from the Spirit, but it's probably more because John and Jesus are first cousins. And so they've seen each other, you know, once or twice a year when the family comes to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. So John is familiar with Jesus, but one thing he has never seen from Jesus, he's never seen Jesus sin. Now, what kind of baptism is John's? John's is a baptism of repentance. So when he shows up and Jesus says, baptize me, John says, no, no, no. This baptism isn't for you. Now, think about this. The Pharisees show up, and John won't baptize them because they are not worthy of being baptized. Now, Jesus shows up, and John won't baptize Jesus because baptism is not worthy of Jesus. You see this flow. Pharisees think they're too good, and John won't baptize them. Jesus is too good, and he can't baptize him. But there's something a little bit larger going on in the the bigger picture here that John doesn't yet know. You see, what's happening is that Jesus never sinned, but in submitting to a baptism of repentance, he's picturing in a small way what he's going to submit to at the cross. Jesus never sinned. Jesus doesn't deserve punishment. Jesus doesn't deserve to die for the sins of the world. And yet Jesus bore that punishment because he placed himself in the place of sinners. He doesn't deserve judgment, and yet he willingly submits himself to it. And so here he submits to a baptism of repentance as a picture of what's going to come when he dies the death on a cross. It's why Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not his sins, our sins. He took our sins on him. He didn't deserve to die, but he died in our place. So he's sinless, but he takes our sins. He's a king who comes 
as a servant, the lowest of us all. And it's in this moment that the father is going to signal his approval of his son, Jesus. Well, immediately after Jesus comes out of the water, Matthew says, the spirit descends on him like a dove and God speaks, this is my beloved son. This is remarkable. If you have a physical copy of God's word, just look back a page. And here I have a, I have a, I have a blank page in my Bible. This page represents four centuries, 400 years, and we call these the 400 years of silence because God has not spoken, God has not appeared, God has not intervened in the life of his people for four centuries. Think about that. I mean, the life of our nation is is much younger than this period of time. For 400 years, God has not spoken, and suddenly a voice speaks from heaven, this, this is the one, this is my son, this is the beloved one, this is the king who comes to take the sins of the world. The father says he is well pleased with the son. Literally, he takes delight in him. And then for those who knew God through faith in Jesus, something remarkable happens. John 1, 12 tells us that for those who know God through faith in Christ, to them he gives the right to be called the children of God. You talk about rights, you have the right to be called God's child through faith in Christ. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can do. But God looks at his son and delights in him. And then through his son, he delights in God's children. We've been parents for several years now, but I can remember shortly after uh, Grayson was born. At the time, in fact, just till just over a year ago, when uh, uh, a hit-and-run driver act, uh, very kindly totaled the car for us, we had a, a little Toyota Corolla. And uh, I can remember when I, uh, when we were, as we were preparing for, you know, our, our, the, the birth of Grayson, Liz wanted us to make sure we had the car seat, you know, in the car, just in case we just got called to the hospital and so, so it would be ready. So I can remember as uh, a dad, no, or a, you know, a husband, no kids, like putting that car seat, and I felt like such a dork, you know. I've got a car seat in the back of my car. But the minute I put a child in that car seat, I felt completely different about it. Like at first, I was like moving from kind of young, athletic, you know, happening to like, oh, I'm old, I'm middle-aged, and I got a kid. But when I had a kid, it changed everything. And I can remember one Sunday coming home, we were driving home from church, and, and uh, Grace had fallen asleep in the back seat. She's just a tiny little baby. We got out, and I don't know if it was when I opened the car door or what, but she was kind of lying there in kind of one of those reclined infant seats, and she had her, her hand sitting on her, on her leg like this. And when I got out, when I opened the door, I looked at her hand, and it just went like this. It just curled up into a little fist like that. And something remarkable happened. That made me happy. I just saw her hand move, and it made me happy. I delighted in her. I've seen a lot of hands move. I've seen a lot of your hands move this morning. It didn't make me happy. Like, that made me happy. In that moment, I delighted in that moment because she's my child. I love, I delight in that child. And what God's Word tells us is that God delights in His Son, and through His Son, He delights in all of God's children. This changes the way we relate to God. God is not a judge to be feared. He is a father to be loved and who loves and embraces us. As Psalm 103 tells us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his own. 
God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're weak, but he loves us anyway. He delights in us because we're his children, and it is the will, it is the heart of the Father to love and embrace his children. Now, for some of us, that is difficult because when you think about dad, you don't think love, delight, embrace. You think fist, anger, abuse, neglect. But brothers and sisters, if you are here, know that your heavenly father is not like that earthly father. His character is that of a loving father who delights in his children. And so if you want to know how to think about God, the next time you're out and about, go to the mall, go to a restaurant, go to a park, and watch. Watch a dad with little kids. And watch that dad delight in those kids, and those kids run to their dad and love their dad and embrace their dad. And that, brothers and sisters, is a small picture. A small picture of the Father's magnificent, infinite love for you. You can't touch it. You can't earn it. It's nothing like any other kind of love in the history of mankind. God delights in his children. If you know God by faith in Christ, he is your father and you are his son or daughter. We no longer need to fear God as judge, but we can run to the arms of our father. Remarkably, doing the thing that we don't want to do, humbling ourselves before God in repentance, is the very thing that leads to God's blessing and God's approval that we could never earn and yet is ours through Jesus. So let's take a moment now. We're going to respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to respond silently in your seats and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now. God, we know that your word tells us judgment is real, but I also thank you that there is mercy through Christ. God, I pray for those here who uh, do not know you through faith in Christ, that you would open their eyes, that you would uh, soften their hearts toward your word. God, I pray for us as your people, that you would help our lives bear the fruit of repentance that is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. And God, I thank you that as our Father, you delight in us as a Father delights in his children. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we'd love to tell you about him. Or if God has worked in uh, your heart in another way, if you would like to follow the Lord in baptism or through a committed church membership as a part of this body, we'd love to talk with you about that as well. In just a minute, we're going to sing in response to God's word. I'll be here at the front. Would love, if there's any way that I can help you or pray with you, would love to be available for that. Let's stand, please. We'll sing as we respond to the word.